And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of the grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, I ask that you take this passage of Ephesians and burn it into our hearts and be with Tom as he speaks and help us, Father, to see your love and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been camped out the last several weeks um, in the best news that anyone has ever heard. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul began by praising God for the outrageous wealth that belongs to all who have been brought into everlasting union with Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone. And then Paul prayed in the second half of chapter 1 that God would make us know the greatness of that wealth, not not merely so that we would know what we've been given by God, that's very important, but so that we would know the one who gave it. So that we would know God Himself. And the only way that that personal, intimate knowledge of God can take place in our hearts is if God does it. God has to make it happen. We don't come to know God personally by simply resolving to know Him. God makes Himself known to those who come to Him in humble, prayerful, utter dependence, asking Him to reveal Himself to us just as Paul asked in the second half of Ephesians 1. I said it last week and I'll say it again, beloved. Our prayers need to look like Paul's prayer in this second half of Ephesians chapter 1. And the other prayers that we find in this epistle and in other epistles. This is what our prayers need to look like. And to the extent that they don't, we have some serious work to do. Here in the first ten chapters, uh, ten verses of chapter two, Paul speaks of God's saving work in its totality. Instead of breaking it up into its past, present, and future aspects, as he does in books like Romans, He presents our salvation here as one accomplished act of God. Because in the eyes of God, it is. It's been decreed from before the foundation of the world. And the central assertion of these ten verses is that we have been saved by grace. But just before (coughs) Paul proclaims that marvelous salvation, he begins this second chapter by telling us 
what we were like before God saved us so that we'll know why we needed saving. In the first three verses of chapter 2, Paul gives us God's assessment of every human being who has not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have been redeemed through faith in Jesus alone, these three verses tell you what you were like before God saved you. If you have not come to trust in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior, then these three verses tell you what you are like right now. And guys, it's really, really bad news. In fact, it's the worst news anybody has ever heard. So aren't you glad you came this morning? We must hear this news because you and I cannot know the truth about what God has done for us and given to us in Christ unless we know the truth about what we deserved from God. You will never begin to know the magnitude of God's grace toward you in Jesus Christ until you agree with God about the magnitude of your need for that grace. So Paul, who has been laying out for us the unfathomable riches of God's grace that He has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, now sets before us the unfathomable depth of our need for that grace. These first three verses in Ephesians 2 are as uncompromising as words allow. The bad news is as bad as it gets, and it's as clear as it gets. Paul sets up in the last verses of chapter 1 and in the first verse of chapter 2 a very stark contrast. It's so stark it will give you whiplash if you're not braced for it. At the very end of chapter 1, Paul spoke of the surpassingly great power of God toward us who believe. And he said it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated Him at His Father's right hand in heaven above all authority and all all power and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. That's the power and authority of Jesus. But then in the very next breath, Paul says, and you, on the other hand, were dead in your trespasses and sins. You see the the connection there? (laughs) The power and authority of Jesus are absolute, but you have no power at all. You have no authority at all because you're dead without Christ. We'll come back to that theme of powerlessness in a minute. Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The word trespasses means just what it looks like. It means you and I crossed a boundary that was forbidden to us. And the word sins means thoughts and words and actions that miss the required mark. And the catastrophic problem here is that the boundary we all violated and the mark that we all missed was the holiness and righteousness of God. And the penalty for that epic failure is death. And we're going to spend some time talking about what death means in the Bible. 
Before God saved you, you weren't just failing to live particularly well. You were dead to God. You weren't just rebellious. You were dead to God. You weren't just evil. You were dead to God. And how did you get that way? (laughs) A man named Adam. The first man who ever walked the earth. Now, I want you to stick with me. In his rebellion against God, Adam did not just step over a forbidden line and then say, oops, and step back. The boundary that he pridefully crossed, the boundary that Adam pridefully crossed, killed him. He didn't just miss the mark of God's righteous requirement. He missed it fatally. Adam and Eve did not just make a mistake when they decided to exalt their own word over God's word and to do the one and only thing that God had forbidden them to do. They rebelled against the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God and the penalty for that rebellion was death. Their rebellion didn't just kill them. It killed you. It killed me. And it killed everyone else. The worst of the bad news about you is that you were already dead before you ever did anything. You were spiritually stillborn, and so was I. And so was everyone else since Adam. You never had any possibility of becoming acceptable to God on your own merits because you didn't have any merits. You were dead. And dead people don't have anything to offer. And that means that salvation has to be by grace alone. It has to be all God's doing. It has to be a gift. There's no other way. Death at its essence is separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the physical body. But physical death was just one part of the curse that God imposed on all mankind because of Adam's sin. And guys, physical death was far from being the worst part of the curse. The separation of your soul from your physical body after you breathe your last breath is not the separation that should terrify every unbeliever. Here's what should. In Psalm 51 verse 5, David, King David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David's not saying that his mom violated the character of God by becoming pregnant. He's saying that he, David, was infected with sin from the moment he was conceived. Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to people whose hearts were still beating when they got this letter. Paul was very pragmatic that way. He tended to write to people who could still breathe. But he tells them that until God saved them, they were already dead. So how could that be the case? Well, they were already dead because Paul is talking about the separation of man, both spiritually and physically, from God. Before Adam and Eve sinned, the communion that they enjoyed with God was both spiritual and physical. God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. Genesis 3 verse 8. That's physical 
communion. And Adam and Eve enjoyed unhindered spiritual communion with God. Sin put an end to both. Both the spiritual and the physical communion. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, no longer to share a place with God. And their spiritual communion was ended. Even though their souls remained connected to their physical bodies until their last breath, they had already died in the very moment that they sinned against God. And so, when God said, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die, He didn't mean when your body dies. He meant right then. And because Adam was the head and representative of all mankind that would descend from Adam, because all of mankind is like Adam, the curse of death that God imposed on Adam and Eve was passed down to every human being since Adam and Eve. In Romans 5 verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And when he says because all sinned, he's not talking about the individual sins that we commit that prove that we're just like Adam. He's talking about the sin of Adam. We all sinned in Adam. A few verses later, he says, by the transgression of the one, the many died. When Adam, whose name, by the way, means man, died to God, mankind died to God. And again, a few verses later, he says, through one transgression, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And there you have it. You can't get much clearer than that. Adam's sin condemned all of us. If that rubs you the wrong way, if you consider it unacceptable that you should be judged and condemned for one sin that another man committed thousands of years ago, I have a couple of things that I'd like to point out to you. First, God has been really clear in both testaments of the Bible about the fact that Adam's sin condemned all of mankind. So if you refuse to accept that that is true, your argument isn't with me, it's with God. The second thing I'd like to point out to you, and this is huge, in the same chapter of Romans from which I just read, Romans 5, God also says that all who believe in Jesus Christ are justified, made perfectly righteous in the eyes of God by one righteous act of the one and only righteous man who ever lived, Jesus That one perfectly righteous man was fully God and fully man and still is. And that one righteous act was his obedience to his father to the point of death on a cross. The death of Jesus in the place of dead, lost sinners like you and I were. If you will not accept that you were condemned by the one transgression of the first man who ever lived, Adam, how will you ever accept that you were saved by the one righteous act of the only righteous man who ever lived? Jesus. And if you don't believe that second part, 
you're not saved. I want to come back to the contrast that Paul blasts us with in the last verses of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, again, he spoke of the surpassing greatness of the power of God toward everyone who believes in Jesus. He said it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him above all authority, all power in heaven and on earth forever. That's the power and authority that belong to Jesus. And in the next verse, verse chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you, on the other hand, were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, dead equals powerless. Dead equals powerless, helpless. Dead people have nothing to offer. There's a biblical doctrine known in Reformed circles as total depravity, and it is at the very heart of Reformation theology. I've often heard it said that total depravity does not mean that there's nothing that we do apart from Christ that's good. It just means that there's nothing that we do that's good enough to overcome the infinite debt of our sin. But brothers and sisters, I believe the Bible asserts that it's both. See, there's a vast difference between good-looking and good. Lost people do all manner of things that look good. But the question is, are they good as God defines good? His is the only definition that matters. And I have to say on biblical grounds, it looks to me like the answer is no. Lost people do not do things that God calls good. When the rich young ruler asked Jesus, Matthew 19, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. Talk about baiting the witness. The correct answer would have been something like, Well, you are the one who is good, and that's why I'm asking you. Because you're the Son of God. But you know that the conversation didn't go that way. The point I want you to see there is that Jesus said there is no one good but God. So how many other human beings are good? Could he have meant one and a few more? In Romans 3, quoting from various Old Testament passages to make sure that both Jews and Gentiles got his point, The Apostle Paul says, please listen guys, he says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. And then in case we missed it the first time, he says not even one. So pop quiz, how many good people are there? Is that unclear? Guys, until God saves us, the things that we do that look godly to us and to other sinners aren't godly in the eyes of God. And His eyes are the only ones that matter. And there is not one single thing that we can do about it because we're dead. Being dead creates some very serious limitations. God gave us a really vivid illustration of those limitations in the form of physical death. See, being dead has a tendency to clear out your schedule. 
When it comes to the relationship between your soul and your physical body, if you're dead, you've got nothing to do. And if you're spiritually dead, if you are dead to God, there's nothing you can do to fix it. Dead equals powerless. It equals helpless. This is one of the greatest differentiators between the truth and every crummy imitation of truth that men have ever devised, and there are plenty of them. There is only one religion on the face of this earth that gets this right, and it's the one that came from God instead of from people. Men, in case you haven't noticed, men don't create religions that declare themselves to be helplessly, hopelessly, spiritually dead and eternally condemned by God before they ever take their first breath. Men create religions with gods who aren't all that holy so that those gods can accept people who aren't all that holy. And then they come up with checklists to tell their followers how to become holy enough to pass muster with those not-so-holy gods. And the lists are basically attainable. It's all very convenient. And it's all completely, completely false. It's garbage. It's a lie. But the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God doesn't grade on the curve because if He did, He wouldn't be God. God is absolutely holy, and we are absolutely not. And because we're dead to God, there's not a single thing we can do to fix it. So the first thing we need to know about our condition before God saved us is that in our physically alive, spiritually dead state, we were stone cold dead in sin, and our relationship with God was done. We were separated from God, body and soul, without God and without hope in the world and utterly powerless to do anything about it. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to know about our condition before God saved us is that in our physically alive, spiritually dead state, we were servants of the wrong masters. We were servants of the wrong masters. And that's where Paul goes in most of verses 2 and 3. See, there is no such thing as freedom without bondage. Everybody serves someone. There's a servanthood that blesses us beyond imagination, and there is a servanthood that curses us eternally. Mankind was designed by God quite literally from the ground up. God took the dirt and breathed life into it. To be servants, we were designed to be servants with Him as our Master. That's what we were made to be. God created human beings to be His image bearers and agents. That's the first thing God ever told us about His reason for creating us. You find it in the first couple of pages of your Bible. An agent serves and represents somebody else. He acts on behalf of the person that he serves. For Adam and Eve before the fall, that person was their benevolent creator, God. And they had the perfect job, guys. Their task exactly matched up with their reason for existence. It's the best job compatibility anyone ever had. Man was created for relationship with God and for service to God. To do God's work 
God's way, in God's creation, in unhindered personal communion with God Himself. And we were the only creatures in God's entire creation equipped to do that assignment because we were the only ones who had been created in His image. Adam and Eve started life as richly blessed servants of the perfect master. Servanthood with no downside. They enjoyed fruitful labor with no resistance from God, no resistance from creation, and no resistance from each other. Imagine that. And then, in a single day, they threw that glorious job right out the window. They abandoned their assignment because they abandoned their God. Their hearts of contented gratitude toward the One who was everything they would ever need became hearts consumed with lust for the one thing in all of God's creation that God said they couldn't have. And that was the thing that God knew would undo them. They exalted their own word over God's word. They determined that somehow they would become more like God by distrusting and dishonoring God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And the very second that they abandoned service of the perfect master, they entered into the service of three tyrannical masters that mankind has been serving ever since. The world, the devil, and the flesh. And I use that order because that's the order in which Paul presents them here. The world, the devil, and the flesh. And when Adam and Eve became servants of those three masters, so did all the rest of us. Paul says in verses 2 and 3 that until God saved us, we all walked according to the course of this world. There's the first master, the world. According to the prince of the power of the air, it's the second master, the devil. And we all lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's the third master, the flesh. And by the way, real quick, How do you uh, indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind? How does the mind come into that? James chapter 1, James says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You know what happens when your mind follows your lust? It just leads you right into sin. That is an abused mind. First, we're servants of the world. Paul says, before God saved us, we walked according to the course of this world. And if you want to know what Paul means by the world, the course of this world, you'd do well to spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. We won't go there this morning, but over and over in those chapters, Paul contrasts the wisdom of this world with the wisdom that is from God. And he says, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. There's the assessment that matters. And the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. We start our earthly lives serving a master that despises the wisdom of God. We could talk a lot about the system of this world, but let's let's go on. The second servant is the devil. Paul says, before God saved us, we walked according to the prince or ruler of the power of the air. He's referring there to Satan. The ruler of all the demonic 
and demon-influenced forces in the heavens and on earth, to which he, the forces to which he later refers in chapter 6. We'll look at that when we get there. Now, most of us would not characterize as ourselves as having been followers of Satan before we were saved. But Paul says that's what we were. He says, we walked according to, meaning that we walked in keeping with the ways of the devil. We did the things he does. Like Satan, we exalted our word over God's word. We preferred a lie to the truth. We served self instead of God. And we tried to take God's seat. We walked in the ways of the devil and that made us servants of the devil. And then thirdly, we were, serv- we were servants of the flesh, all of us. He goes on in Ephesians 2, verse 2, to say that before God saved us, the spirit, the driving force and motivation in us was the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And when you see in the Bible the words son of or child of, and they're not immediately followed by the name of the person's father, That's a Hebrew way of saying that you're talking about someone who's characterized or defined by something. Characterized or defined by something. So in in Job 41 verse 34 refers to sons of pride. That means people who are defined, controlled by pride, as if pride were their father. Hosea 10 verse 9 refers to sons of iniquity. Isaiah 57 4 speaks of children of rebellion offspring of deceit. By the way, all of those apply to us before we're saved. When Paul says that the spirit that controlled us was the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, he's saying we were controlled and we were defined by our rebellious disobedience against God. We weren't just occasionally disobedient. Guys, we were disobeyers. That's who we all were all the time. We were disobeyers. Rebels. In the first part of verse 3, Paul shows us that the spirit of disobedience was really ugly and really, really selfish. He now includes himself along with everyone else who's ever lived. He says, We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. How would you like to spend all of your time with someone who lived only to indulge selfishness? Well, I have news for you. Before you were saved, you did spend all your time with someone like that, and that someone was you. We lived lives of obsession in the lusts of our flesh, indulging, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we made it look really good. We even made it look godly. We made it look selfless when it was selfish. I can't help but think of Genesis 6, verse 5, when God looked down upon mankind just before He told Noah to start building the big boat. And here's what God saw. He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Of course, it got a lot better, right? 
Fast forward a couple of thousand years, a few thousand years to the days of the prophet Jeremiah. And God says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, he's talking about the heart of man, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's real progress, isn't it? And isn't it comforting to know that by Paul's day, mankind had reached such a state of moral perfection that God's assessment of every single one of us was we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and that's all we did. And people have the arrogance to say that mankind is basically good. When they do that, they're calling the God who made them a bald-faced liar. We were all as wretched as wretched gets and we couldn't do anything at all to become less wretched than we were. All we could do is rearrange our sins. The last thing that Paul tells us about our condition before God saved us is that we were destined to wrath. All of us. At the very end of Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul tells us the consequence for all of mankind of all of that wonderful moral progress that we have made. He says, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. When he says that's what we were by nature, he means we were born that way. There's a lot of talk these days about living according to how you were born. God says we were all born as children of wrath. David declared of himself, we were all conceived in sin. And because of that pervasive infection of sin, we were all already condemned to suffer the eternal wrath of God before we ever drew our first breath. We were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. You can look uh, on your own. I'll let you look at Ephesians 5 where he talks about the wrath of God come, coming on the sons of disobedience. The same, same wording that is using here. So in Ephesians 2 verse 3, in Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul is saying we started life on this earth as objects of God's wrath. Guys, the default destiny of all mankind is hell. Because that's exactly what we deserve from God and it's all that we deserve. Now aren't you glad you came this morning so you could go home all encouraged? Friends, there is nothing more encouraging than knowing the infinite difference between what you deserve from God and what you have been given by God and Jesus Christ. To a Christian, that contrast is at the same time the most terrifying truth and the most amazingly beautiful truth that we will ever know. People don't want to hear that kind of preaching because they don't want to hear what God actually has to say about what we deserve but you cannot know how incomparably good the good news is if you don't know how incomparably bad the bad news is. The bad news about all of us is as bad as it gets. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved because there was no other way that you could be saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
Why did Paul say all of these horrifying things in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 when he was writing to believers? Why in the world would he want to rub our noses in what we used to be before God saved us? I'll let Charles Haddon Spurgeon answer that question. Spurgeon said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before God convicted and condemned with the rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Peter O'Brien writes, only the person who understands something of the greatness of God's wrath will be mastered by the greatness of His mercy. Oh, that we would be mastered by the greatness of God's mercy. Friends, I believe the most important question that every man, woman, and child has to answer in this life is what is your assessment of Jesus Christ? But there's a second question that's actually inseparable from that one. And that is, what is God's assessment of you? What do you deserve from the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God who made you? I believe that second question is the acid test of a right understanding of the gospel. The answer I get most often from Christians when I ask that question is, I don't deserve anything from God. I understand that answer. It's better than the world's answer. And it comes because we think of the word deserved as if it always is talking about something good. And we say, I don't deserve anything good from God. But beloved, it's infinitely worse than that. Because there is something we deserve from God. Your sin is such a grievous, high-handed offense against a holy God that what you deserve from Him is the full measure of His eternal wrath. And that's why the good news is so unspeakably good. The infinite magnitude of your need could only be met by the infinitely greater magnitude of God's grace that He lavished upon you in Jesus Christ if you have put your faith in Him, in him alone. And if you haven't, I pray with all my heart that God will humble you to agree with Him about what you deserve from Him. Guys, when I was 16 years old and my high school biology teacher shared the Gospel with me, it was the first time in those 16 years that I could ever look my sin in the face and know just how rich I was. Because He showed me the grace of God in Christ and then He, he showed me Romans 3, that there's no one good. He showed me just how wretched I am before God and I could finally admit this because I had seen this. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. I pray with all my heart that if you're here today and you have not been humbled before God to admit to Him what He says you deserve, that you will behold the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the undeserved gift 
of eternal life. And you'll confess to God that what you deserved was eternal condemnation. And you'll receive that gift as it in the only way that it can be ever had, and that is by trusting the one who offers it, taking him at his word, believing that that gift is real, it is true, and it is yours. And then I pray for everybody here who belongs to Jesus Christ that you will be mastered by his mercy. God wants us to know and live in and walk in and be driven and controlled by the perfection of His grace toward us in Jesus Christ. As our closing prayer, I just want us to say, not sing, just the first verse of John Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace. It's the most well-known hymn in the world, so most of you know the first verse. Say it with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Dear Father, thank You for Your amazing grace toward us in Jesus Christ. We praise Your name and we praise His. Amen.